Well, two weeks ago, we left off in our study of the life of Jesus with that amazing, great story of Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11. And it's that story, if you remember, in which Jesus is out preaching and teaching. He is being Jesus, but he's being Jesus somewhere other than the hometown of Lazarus, where Lazarus is dying. And so his sisters, Mary and Martha, sent him a message. The note goes something like this, Dear Jesus, Lazarus is going to die unless you drop absolutely everything, rush to his bedside and heal him. And here's the deal. As you walk through that story, that's what you think he's going to do. And the reason you think he's going to do that is because, well, John starts the story by saying, and Jesus loved. Hear the word? Who? Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus, their brother. Jesus Christ has gone around for a couple of years now healing perfect strangers, guys. Clearly, he's going to come heal his you know, beloved. But then he didn't. In fact, he waits and lets Lazarus die knowingly, purposefully, intentionally, and he doesn't come to town until Lazarus has been in the tomb, this cave hewn out of stone, for four days. He is long, long gone Why did he do that? Because some of you who missed the story are thinking, well, maybe that just means that Jesus didn't love this guy after all. No, 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 that's not what it means. But it does mean that he let them struggle with that. He let them wrestle through that. They must have thought that and had to fight that. And you say, all right, well, maybe it means that Jesus is sadistic. No, he doesn't enjoy the suffering of his people either. When he does show up in town, having already declared to his disciples, hey, listen, this is the reason we're going to go see Lazarus now. We're going to go because death for me is like sleep, okay? I'm going to wake him up from the dead. I am going to raise him from the dead. So he knows what he's going to do. He hasn't cried once. Lazarus has been dead for four days. He sees Mary weeping, and what does the Lord do? He weeps, and not just a little bit. I mean, the Greek language is powerful. It's like it's uncontrollable, shaking, weeping. He's moved by the tears of his people. The Bible teaches us that our God collects them in a bottle. It's fascinating. So that's not it. Jesus lets Lazarus die, and he allows these people that he loves to suffer through that and all of the why questions that came along with that, and here's why. Because he wanted to teach them, and he wants to teach us and hundreds of millions of others who have sat under the teaching of this story a lesson, and this is the shocking part, that is even more valuable than human physical life. And I say that's the shocking part because that's what we're going to need to work against in our own hearts and minds today because all of our lives we've been trained to think that is the supremely valuable thing. And all of our lives we have postured ourselves in such a way as to safeguard it, as to secure it, as to insulate it, as to take this thing called human life and to extend it as far as we possibly can and to make it as healthy and as comfortable as we possibly can. Is there anything wrong with that? No, as long as that's not your supreme value. See, the Bible calls us to value something different above that which the world teaches us to value, which is this life. We're taught almost from birth, subconsciously and consciously, to live for this life in this world. And the Bible comes and says, really? Your life's about, oh, I don't know, blink your eye. That's it. 
calls our life a vapor. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. It's like the grass of the fields, right? It's, it's in full bloom and it's beautiful and the sun rises and it withers and it's gone. It's not very long. And the longer you live, the more you realize that. Jesus comes with something far more precious even than our human life. He speaks of another life, one that doesn't end. And He lets Lazarus die, and these people suffer through all of these questions, and it had to be gut-wrenchingly traumatic for them. Why did He let this happen? Why did He not come? Does He actually love us? Is this the thing that He can't fix? Like, this miracle's too much for Him. Because He's done this for all these other people, and He loves us. Well, I thought He loved us, and I don't know, you know, I mean, you can imagine it. Maybe you've thought it. Jesus allows them to go through this season of time to teach to them and to me and to you a lesson that is more valuable than the supreme value that our world teaches, which is our human physical life and existence in this world. And the lesson is that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. It's kind of cool. I mean, that's nice because He can call forth the dead, and I don't want to depress you, but that's coming for us, isn't it? He brings life out of death. He does that physically. He does that spiritually. He brings to life that which is dead, and He Himself is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. And when you begin to weigh that out on the scales of what actually matters in the big picture, wow, you know, I mean, that just whoops up on this little itty-bitty blink-of-an-eye thing that we treasure, frankly, far too much. So anyway, Jesus waits. He lets him lie in the grave for four days. He lets them go through all of these questions. He rolls into town. He says, you know what? Here's the deal. I'm the resurrection and the life. Take me to the tomb. He goes to the tomb, and what does he do? He does what only he can do. He calls the man forth from the grave. Stunning. And Martha and Mary freak out. And Lazarus, once they finally unbind him, freaks out. Their family and friends who are all still hanging out, freak out. The whole town that turns out to see what in the world, you know, is going on with Jesus, because I'm sure they all expected that He would have shown up too, you know, so He's the talk of the town, freak out. All the people in Jerusalem, which is less than two miles away from this town of Bethany, then begin to freak out, because some of the mourners at Lazarus' funeral are from Jerusalem, and they take the word back, and then guess who freaks out? See, if this was a movie, this is where you'd hear, dun-dun-dun-dun, the chief priests, The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jewish people freak out. The men who have been standing opposed to Jesus from the beginning of His ministry freak out. And John gives us their reaction. He says this in John 11, beginning of verse 47. It says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together in the council and said, guys, I don't know how we've missed it all this time. What what is our problem? How have we been so blind? I mean, it's not like this is the first thing he's done. It's the most amazing, admittedly, but seriously. This man teaches like no man has ever taught, and then he backs it up. He feeds the 5,000, you know, bread, like from five loaves of bread. Everyone gets lunch. Think about that. He heals people in amazingly miraculous ways, and sometimes he doesn't even have to be there to do it. Like he sent the guy home and go, hey, you know what? Your child's going to be fine. When you get there, I know that he's 25 miles away. Just go. It's going to be cool. No worries. He takes a paralyzed guy, paralyzed for 38 years, 
No problem for Jesus. He takes the man born blind, gives him eyes that work. Now he's raised the dead. I think at some point, gentlemen, we need to just man up and say, this must be God in the flesh. He has to be the Messiah. He's got to be the Son of God and the Son of Man and the Savior of the world, and we need to stop fighting against this guy. I mean, this is just crazy. And what we need to do is submit ourselves to this guy, become the disciples of this man, crawl in on our face and ask him to be gracious to us and to forgive us for what in the world could possibly, what in the world could possibly be more valuable than him. All right, it's not what they do. You know that's not what they do. You know the rest of the story. But it's what they should have done. But see, the story doesn't end there because it's what I should do. And it's the aha moment, frankly, that all of us should have. It's the thing that all of us should do when you, when you really step back from it and go, well, wait a minute, let me disentangle myself from everything I've thought and been taught and, you know, the whole deal, and I just look at it. Christ is the supreme value of life, period. Let me read to you what they really do. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Everybody goes nuts. The chief priests get wind of it. Verse 47, it says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered in the council and they said, what are we going to do for this man performs many signs? You think? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. All of a sudden, everybody is going to claim this man as their Messiah and their king, and that's going to cause some major political issues for us with the Romans because the Romans have exactly one king, and they tolerate no other king. So they're worried. But they're not worried about the people, and they're not worried about Jesus, and they're not... Listen to what they're worried about. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come, and... And this is what they value more than Christ. Take away both our... Oh, nice word, right? Our place. They'll come and they'll take away our power and our position and our status and our nation. This nation full of people who, until Jesus, you know, started messing everything up by doing these kinds of things, obeyed us, served us, revered us, followed us. And so their solution is, well, you know, the Passover's coming. Here's what we're going to do. When he shows up to celebrate the Passover, just like all the Jewish people from that whole region of the world would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover when Jesus, with the rest of them, show up, we're going to kill him. That's the solution. But what's the problem? The problem is that they value the things of this world. Power, position, status, obeisance, more than Christ. A world that's passing away. A life that for every one of us, by the time we get to the end of it, no matter how many years we live, is going to feel really short. I keep looking, and I'm going to be 47 in August, and I keep thinking, man, that is freaking me out. I don't feel 47. I mean, parts of me do, like my shoulder and my hip. Other than that, I feel like 23. It's going fast. 
They value the things of this world more than Jesus. And here's the deal. As we move through these stories today, you're going to find, you know what? They're not alone. Judas Iscariot, ever heard of him? Raise your hand if you've heard of him. Everybody's heard of him. Everybody values the things of this world more than Jesus. How do we know that? Because he sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He betrays him for roughly $1,000. We're going to meet a crowd today who gets wind of the fact that Jesus is coming from Bethany, riding on the donkey's colt. It's Palm Sunday, if you know that story. And oh man, they're going to turn out in droves, and they're going to be all jacked and excited about Jesus. And they're going to call Jesus their king, and they're going to claim him as their Messiah, and they're going to shout out Hosanna, which means bring salvation, and hear the next word, now, and cut down palm branches and pull off their cloaks and throw them down in the pathway of his donkey and all that stuff. That all happens in this chapter, but if you know the larger narrative, you know that, again, only a few days down the road, most of this same crowd is shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Why? Well, we'll unpack it a little bit, but bottom line, because they value the things of this world more than Jesus. They had an agenda for Jesus, and his agenda was a little different. But then in the midst of all of these self-interested people, we'll be reintroduced to Mary. Mary gets it right. Mary is the one who values Christ supremely. She treasures Him above all things. And as a result, her life is truly fragrant. It smells of the value of the Lord Jesus. And here's the question that I want you to ask yourself. As we're moving through these different characters, and this too is difficult for us because, you know, we're raised, a lot of us in the church, or we've hung around long enough to kind of figure out who the bad guys are in the Bible. Oh, that's the Pharisees. Clearly, I could never be like them. Oh, that's the chief priests. I could never be like them. Oh, that's Judas. Good grief. I could definitely not ever be like him or the fickle crowd. Really? Are you sure? Because I think there's a little bit of every one of those guys just under the surface of a lot of us. As we move through the story, and we've already seen the chief priests and Pharisees, I want you to be asking yourself, all right, honest, you know, you the Holy Spirit and the mirror, the mirror of the Word. Who do I look most like in this story? Is there anything or anyone that I value really and truly more so than God, more so than my Lord? We pick up our study in John chapter 12, beginning of verse 1, where John says this, six days before the Passover at which the chief priests and the Pharisees will arrest and kill Jesus, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, which again is only like two miles from Jerusalem, and this is his first visit since he raised Lazarus from the dead, and so they do something really cool. They throw a feast in his honor. He comes to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, and now they're going to honor him. So they gave a dinner for him there, and it's a dinner in which Martha serves and all this kind of stuff, but it's a dinner in which even if you don't have a seat at the table, if you're part of the community, you're sort of invited to kind of listen in, be a part of it. Look through the window, cram into the room. There's a lot of people from Bethany here. 
And Jesus is at the head of the table. He is the focus. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, and so they gave a dinner for him there. And Martha, who is ever the servant, served. And Lazarus, who's the living proof, if you think about it, of the fact that Jesus is indeed the resurrection and the life. I mean, Lazarus himself has become a tourist attraction at this point. The man who was dead lives. Well, Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And now here comes Mary. John says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment. It's perfume is what it is, and it's made from pure nard. And the word expensive does not do it justice. I'll be honest with you. I have not bought a bottle of perfume, and some of you women are going to gasp, but I'll explain in a second, in like 30 years because and, and I'm allergic to it. So it's tough, man. If you're one of my daughters, you've had to just live through that. So I have no idea what expensive perfume actually costs, but I'm guessing 500 bucks, $1,000 for a bottle of perfume. Is that expensive? 1500 That is nothing compared to what we're talking about here. Judas is going to value it for us. He's going to tell us in a minute it's worth 300 denarii. What is that? That's a whole year's worth of wages for an average daily laborer in that day. So, I mean, if you want to compute that into today's language and you just use minimum wage as the scale and you use 300 12-hour days, because that's how many hours they worked in the day as the measure, this bottle of perfume is worth $27,612. Minimum. But to Mary, it's worth much more than that because in all likelihood, at least, it was a family heirloom. It was something that was passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation to generation to Mary, to her, it's priceless. To her, it is the single most valuable worldly possession that she has, economically and sentimentally. But notice what she does with it. John says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment or perfume made from pure nard and she anointed the dusty, dirty feet of Jesus. She takes her greatest worldly treasure and gladly pours it out upon the lowliest parts of the Lord. And then it gets even more intense. You see what's happening, and it must be happening at this point in this room, because Jesus is the focus, and, you know, people are watching this, and, I mean, their jaws are on the ground. I'm thinking the conversation has stopped. Then... She takes the emblem of the glory of the woman in her day, the most glorious part of the woman of her day, her hair, and she wipes his dusty, dirty feet with it. So you got to picture it. Jesus rolls into town with the disciples. They throw the big feast. It's in a home, big home. Everybody's invited, packing in. Jesus is at the table. Lazarus, the living proof that he's the resurrection and the life, is at the table. The disciples are at the table, Martha is serving, Lazarus is laughing, the disciples are talking, and Jesus is no doubt being compellingly engaging, as He obviously is. And here comes Mary, and she takes this thing that everyone in that culture understood to be absolutely precious. This is not something you do this with. And she sits down at the dirty, dusty feet of Jesus as they, as they recline at this table. 
You know, it's not a three-foot-tall table you pull a chair up to. It's like a two-foot-tall table with pillows around that you lay on your side so your stinky feet can be as far away from it as possible and your head as close and you eat with one hand. She sits down at his feet and she breaks the neck of this precious ointment. And she doesn't just, you know, put a couple of drops on it. She empties it out on his feet. And then she ratchets it up a couple of notches by doing something that in that day a woman, generally speaking, would only do in the presence and in the solitude of her husband. She lets her hair down and uses that as a rag with which to wipe his feet. And notice what happens. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole story. It's the second part of verse 3. It says, The house was filled with the fragrance of the value of Jesus Christ as demonstrated through this woman who valued Jesus Christ more than anything or anyone and did it shamelessly, publicly, lavishly, extravagantly because that is appropriate. And she got that. And the fragrance permeated her home, and it permeated her family. And if she worked, you know what? She would have taken it with her there too, permeated her office, permeated her friendships and relationships, permeated her little town. The whole house was filled with the fragrance of the value of Jesus. It was filled with the fragrance of this perfume, but see, that's not the only fragrance in the room, and we're going to see that. Because now Judas is going to speak. Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, you know, the guy who was about to betray Jesus to the chief priests and to the Pharisees, now get this, again, for about $1,000. So what does he value more than Jesus? Money. Okay, now you the spirit in the mirror, okay? That's a tough one, isn't it? I mean, like it gets kind of stuck in your throat, like... Wow. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray Jesus, said, why was this ointment not sold for $27,612 and, you know, given to the poor? But John then unmasks him, for he's a fraud. And he tells us Judas said this not because he actually cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag is charge of the money of God. He's like the treasurer, you know, like for Jesus and the disciples. He would steal from the Lord. He used to help himself to what was put into it. And so listen to what Jesus says to Judas. John tells us that Jesus said, leave her alone. That's not a suggestion. That's an imperative Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, look, that's a difficult little phrase to translate, and it's difficult to understand as well. But I think what Jesus is saying here is, guys, there is nothing and there is no one more valuable, not even human life, more valuable than me, Jesus. And you see, since that's true, that's not arrogant. 
And since that's true, that's not like, you know, he's not doing us a favor. He's doing us a favor. Like, that's helpful information. And what he's saying is, look at this woman. She gets it. She gets it. For she has taken that which is most valuable to her, and she has shamelessly and lavishly poured it out upon me. And he's saying, I just want you to know that was perfectly appropriate. It was beautiful. It was awesome. It was amazing. She did with it what the Spirit of God directed her to do with it. And Judas, man, you don't get it. You don't get it. And what happened? Fragrance. Fragrance. There is a fragrance to the life of a Christian who takes the currency of this world, be that money, be that time, be that talent, be that, you know, promotion, be that status, name it whatever you want, who takes the currency of the world, that which this world calls supremely valuable, and pursues as if it is God, and lavishly and shamelessly breaks the neck of it and pours it out on the feet of Christ. There is fragrance to that. It fills a home, it fills a community. So Jesus rebukes Judas at this dinner, and the next day he wakes up and says, okay, look, I know that I'm a hunted man, but I'm going to Jerusalem today. And he begins to come. And as I told you already, the crowds get wind of the fact that he's coming, and they are really, really excited about this. They are going to proclaim him king, and in fact, that's exactly what happens as Jesus, who mounts this donkey's colt and, and, you know, fulfillment of this prophecy of Zechariah, takes the ride down the Mount of Olives, through the Garden of Gethsemane, into the Kidron Valley, which stands below the Temple Mount, and then up into the temple. These folks proclaim him as king. They say, bring your salvation now, Hosanna. They cut off the palm branches. They throw down their cloaks. I mean, the party is on. And then later in the week, they shout, crucify him. How do you explain that? When they hailed him as king, they had a different concept of what kind of king he really is. See, they proclaim him as a military messiah, and they're really excited about that. That's exciting because that is right in alignment with their political ambitions and agenda. They want to be out from under the yoke of Rome, okay? And they're looking at Jesus and going, all right, let's see. He can feed multitudes from very little food so he can feed an army. He can heal people, and he doesn't even need to be there so he can heal an army. He can raise the dead. How do you defeat that guy? Not even Rome with all of her power could defeat him. Jesus is the king, and we are really excited about Jesus. They have an agenda for Jesus. But when they realize that that's not His agenda, then everything changes. They value something of this world more than Christ. They value that which is dying and perishing above that which will live forever. And so John brings this whole conversation about the value of Jesus to a head. Beginning at verse 20, it's interesting. He says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, meaning non-Jewish people in all likelihood, 
but probably people who had either converted to Judaism or at the very least were interested in the God of Judaism, so they'd come up also to celebrate the Passover. But now they've heard about Jesus too, so now they want to meet Him. And so they came to Philip, who's one of the disciples of Jesus, who's from Bethsaida in Galilee and who also had a Greek name. So the Greeks approached the guy with the Greek name to ask if they can see Jesus. They're very intelligent how they do it. And they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, and here it comes. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and I want you to see what that glorification looks like because it's not what you and I all of our lives have been just sort of reflexively and instinctively taught to assume. Like if you're walking down the street, you never heard this message today, you know, you're just going to lunch or whatever, somebody pops in and does the man on the street interview and sticks the microphone in your mouth and goes, okay, can you please describe for me in vivid terms what glory looks like? I'm guessing it's not going to be what Jesus says next. So listen to what Jesus says next. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And since, you know, everybody seems to be working off a different definition of that than me, I'm going to define it for you. Here's what it looks like for me, Jesus, but not just for me, Jesus. This extends to His people. And He's going to do that extension here in a second. But He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, what? Falls into the earth and, keyword, dies. Unless that happens... It remains alone. It's just a seed. But if that happens, if it dies, if it falls into the ground, well, then what happens? Well, then it germinates, doesn't it? It comes to life, and it comes to life in a groundbreaking, literally, kind of way, like in a breaking forth from the ground kind of way, in a way that speaks of resurrection. It comes forth, and it doesn't come forth alone. No, no, now. It's coming forth bearing fruit, bearing, actually, he says, much fruit. Guys, the glorification of which Jesus is speaking and saying, here's what's coming for me, and this is glory, is his suffering and death. It's his burial. It's his resurrection from the dead in which he comes forth from the grave, from the ground, if you will, bearing the fruit of eternal life for all who believe. So what's the example of Jesus? Is it cling to the things of this world? Is it cling to your life in this world? Is it cling to, you know, power and prestige and whatever you can manufacture in this world and insulate your life and secure yourself as much as possible? There's a wisdom to those things. I'm not knocking those things. I'm knocking them if they're your supreme value. Jesus' method is give my life away in this world in recognition that in doing that, Real life comes. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth, and what? It dies. It remains alone, but if it dies, well, then it bursts forth from the ground, and it bears much fruit. And then he speaks to his followers. And he says, guys, I want you to do the same thing. He says, whoever loves his life... Whoever treasures his life in this world, whoever treasures the things of this world, whoever makes them the supreme value and pursuit of their lives, that person, he says, what happens with that life? He loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world, that doesn't mean you walk through life going, my life stinks, I really hate it, therefore I'm living the life that Jesus calls me to live. No. 
Of all people, we should be the most joyful, even when life stinks, objectively. That's not what he's not calling us to be sour and dour and, you know, that's not it. He's saying, whoever values me so much as to despise, in some sense, the value of everything else because he sees me as the supreme value and therefore is rightly able to measure the value of everything else. That person who does that and lives that kind of life, well, that person will keep it for eternal life. He's saying, look, if, if this life is all about you and it's about this world and it's about preservation, it's about gathering, it's about these values, he's saying when you die, here's what you lose. You lose everything you've lived for. But if this life is all about me and I am the supreme value of this life and you prove it every now and again by creating the fragrance of the value of me in your home and in your office and in this church and in the community and so on and so forth by taking the things that everybody's jaw is on the ground about and sacrificing them and pouring them out on my feet as the Spirit directs whatever that may mean. That's what you do. And if that's how you live, then when you die, what do you lose? Nothing. What do you gain? Everything you've lived for. There's this little tiny life of ours, and then there's, well, my arms aren't wide enough, are they? There's eternity. There are all the things that we've been called to treasure, and then there's Jesus. Whoever loves his life loses it, our Lord teaches. And whoever hates his life in this world, hear that? Will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. He must. He does, not like he might want to consider it. I think it'd be a good idea. He must follow me. And how? In, in his example of dying to himself. He must follow me. And where I am, what a great statement, that's heaven, there will my servant be also. Heaven is where Jesus is. To which he then adds, if anyone serves me, this world will honor him. No, if anyone serves me, there are going to be moments where this world sits with their jaw on the ground and goes, what in the world are you doing? Because you are demonstrating a value system that is so radically different from mine, from ours, that, I mean, it's hard for me to have a category for this. But what a fragrance. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's honor. That's glory. See, the gospel turns everything inside out. Everything's upside down. It takes all of our paradigms and shatters them like glass. It comes to us and it says things like, you know what? True power comes to those who value worldly power less than Jesus and willingly dispose of it if that's what he calls us to do. True position comes to those of us who are not consumed with our position but with the position of Christ. True status comes to those of us who care less about our status. Then we care about the status of Jesus. True wealth comes to those of us who treasure the treasure of Christ above the fleeting treasures of this world. And true glory comes to those of us who cease and desist with the quest that we just instinctively go on to draw and to bring glory to ourselves and who instead embark by God's Spirit on a quest to bring glory 
to Jesus Christ. That is the life of the person who, by the way, when they die, eternally gain everything, including the honor of the Father. If anyone serves me in that fashion, the Lord is saying, he's defined what that service looks like. The Father will honor him. All right, so it's question time. Chief priests, Pharisees, <clears throat> Judas. It's a tough one, isn't it? It's humbling. The crowd, you know, they're all fickle. Or Mary. Who are you? And which one of these characters would your calendar say that you look most like? You value with that precious resource called time. It's more valuable than money, I think. It represents life, doesn't it? What do your priorities say? What does your checkbook say? What does your commitment to things like purity say? What would your husband or wife or, or parent or child or very, very best friend, like knows all about you, best friend, say? Is there anything or anyone that you value more than Jesus Christ? Because if there is, here's what it is. You ready? It's your $27,612 bottle of perfume. And the call upon you, as God directs, is to stop worshiping it and to start worshiping Him. And as He leads, you might find you have to break the neck of that dude and pour it out completely on His feet and wipe up His feet with that which the world calls glory. That's the life God honors. That's the life that truly leads to glory. And that's the life that permeates your homes, offices, schools, and whatnot with the fragrance of the value of Jesus. The world understands that. It does.